this man here in the, in the middle of the photo, uh, he was at a meeting uh, in the capital uh, and he was discussing the national budget of his home country. Uh, now, at the same point in time, this young lady was also in the area. She was visiting her cousin who was leading the debate. So these two souls uh, sort of came together. Now the young lady caught uh, Ferdinand's eye and uh, a journalist, uh, someone who's helpful and obliging, he introduced them. So Ferdinand got to uh, 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 meet this young lady. Now apparently uh, he had a couple of uh, rules before he started dating her and one of them was that he had to, she had to be shorter than him and, and she was, so uh, she was quids in uh, there. And uh, after uh, checking these couple of things out, uh, he, Ferdinand, pursued a whirlwind uh, romance with Amelda and they married 11 days later. All you parents uh, who are uh, just looking out for your kids, 11 days from meeting to getting married, that is uh, quite some achievement. Um, they were married for another 11 years, and at that point, Ferdinand became president of his country. And 35-year-old Amelda was at his side. Uh, it's a real heartwarming story so far. This lovely young couple, uh, uh, full of the joys of uh, materialism, saw the advantages very quickly of leadership, and over the next 20 uh, or 21 years, they set the Guinness World Record for the greatest ever robbery of government, which is quite an achievement for this uh, young couple. It looks like they probably squirrelled away around 10 billion US dollars, um, which is certainly some going, isn't it? Um, on top of dealing with torture and massacre, uh, Ferdinand did things uh, like uh, send uh, his forces uh, into Vietnam to help the US, and when the US gave him a backhander for saying thank you, he pocketed it all. None of it went to the state at all, uh, he just lined his own pockets. Um, after around 20, 21 years, uh, the people recognised that these perhaps weren't the best leaders that they'd ever encountered, and they might need a regime change, uh, so they ran away. Um, and they went into exile, and they came to the US Customs, and I love Customs, because Customs keep an account of everything, you ain't coming in unless we've filled in every form possible. Um, and apparently the Customs record for their exile into the US uh, ran to 23 pages. Uh, they packed 23 wooden crates, 12 suitcases, uh, they carried with them 24 gold bricks that Amelda had lovingly given her husband Ferdinand that says, uh, to my husband on our 24th uh, wedding anniversary. Isn't that a lovely present? And some of you women are feeling uh, that seems a little bit outstretched, and some of your husbands saying that's a present I would like to receive 24 gold bullions. And uh, they also, uh, amongst these wooden crates, they had 27 million Philippine pesos, freshly minted. 
So they went into exile quite comfortably off. Thank you very much. Um, if you've any awareness of history uh, and international affairs, you will probably aware that power has a few problems associated with it. There are some things that seem to be attracted to power that are not truthful and beautiful. It is uh, when people are not suited for power or when it goes to their head, it quickly leads to all sorts of abuse, all sorts of corruption, all sorts of immorality, and all sorts of violence and failed states, uh, uh, absolutely litter world history uh, with people making terrible decisions for personal gain. Um, and this story is as old as human societies itself. The temptations and challenges of leadership uh, just go back through the annals of history. Um, if you know anything of your biblical history, uh, you know that uh, sort of when Joseph uh, uh, rose as sort of prime minister, he invited his family in. Jacob or Israel uh, uh, sort of uh, led his family uh, into Egypt, and so. At that time, this, uh, like the, the grandfather, Jacob, uh, looked after or looked over it, around a family of around 70. Um, and it was this guy that directed his emerging nation. It's only a nation of 70 at the time, but it was, uh, he was the one that directed his values uh, and, and uh, priorities. Uh, Israel would be in Egypt for around four, uh, 430 years and they went from a place of privilege to a place of being enslaved. Their uh, uh, privileged place uh, was sort of forgotten and neglected uh, and they become like an underclass in Egyptian society. And 430 years, um, without things like birth control, their nation flourished very quickly and it looks like 430 years later there were many thousands where there had just been 70 uh, originally. And so when uh, Israel was coming out of Egypt, uh, it was a lot different prospect to when they came in. And it seems that over those years, over those years uh, um, in a foreign country in Egypt, and then when they uh, uh, were rescued out of Egypt, uh, this principle of government still uh, uh, existed where kind of like the patriarch of the family was the one that ruled uh, and made the calls and the decisions uh, over what deci uh, over what direction should be taken. So these heads of families uh, makes it sound a bit like the mafia would come together, uh, perhaps in quiet coffee shops and mumble um, over espressos as to uh, uh, where Israel uh, uh, what it should look like and what values and rules. Uh, uh, should be um, taken. When Christianity emerged, we were just a sect of Judaism, of uh, this sort of uh, uh, religious uh, group in Israel, and it leans heavily on this Jewish idea of sort of patriarchal leadership. And it was organised in a very similar way. And so the, 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 those presiding over churches would be unimaginatively be called elders, which is exactly what 
uh, Israel was governed over. So uh, there was that sort of continuity there. And um, perhaps in this pandemic, you've come this morning, you're hurting inside and you want to be ministered to, perhaps a, a degree of a sort of mental health care or well-being. Uh, well, uh, we're going through Peter and um, I'm afraid we're talking about leadership today. So I can see the uh, sort of numbers suddenly go down online as you're hoping for a bit of self-care. Uh, we're talking about something practical. But one of the disciplines of going through a book is that you deal with everything there and you have to look everything in the eye and not choose your favourite bits or the bits that make you feel uh, uh, good. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1. To the elders among you, you can see where Peter's coming from now, hopefully. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. So Peter's saying, you know, I'm one of you, let me talk to you. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain. Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos were looking at you. Um, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I like that title, Jesus as Chief Shepherd. Peter knows that leadership in the church is important. It is vital for the body of Christ. And it's also a recipe for disaster because humans are very good at leading badly. Um, and so Peter sends this letter to these churches um, around the Black Sea. Um, and he's looked straight at those that are part of the church that are in charge, that make the decisions. Uh, uh, that uh, make calls on people's lives and, and, and help them. Um, and he says there needs to be spiritual leadership in the local congregation. Um, and those in that role have very particular expectations. Placement. They don't get to do whatever they want. They don't get to make up their role however they see fit. There are structures in place that they need to abide by. Um, and so there are three very important reasons why Peter puts this in place. So first of all, church isn't anarchic, uh, anarchic free-for-all where everyone gets to do what they feel. You know, we're not like uh, no one's in charge and you never quite know what's going to happen and um, uh, if you suddenly decide uh, that uh, a point of theology that your voice counts as much as anyone else. Order, discipline, wisdom and authority have to be present in a congregation and it has to be valued. It's not an optional extra. 
You know, it's not just like a, a, a house group where everyone's equal. There is a structure in place and people need to honour that. Secondly, Peter's words remind us that it is really easy to judge leadership badly. I wonder what you think good leadership looks like. I wonder how many leadership uh, books or articles or um, picky little sayings you've come across and go, oh yeah, that's what good leadership looks like. Well, at least it sounds good to me. Uh, we live in a culture that loves a bit of energy. You know, some, someone uh, that is a little charismatic, smiles all the time and makes you feel good about yourself. Or someone that can sort of uh, deal with the numbers. They may not be very charismatic, but as long as they can uh, uh, create large followings, then that is good. Or if they can sort of wrestle the finances so they're really successful. All these things are seen and can be seen as measures and metrics of what a good leader looks like. Certainly in the business world, if you are bringing in the money, that seems to be a good business leader. If you are uh, uh, attracting a large group of people to follow you, then that seems to be uh, that seems to be a good business leader. If you're charismatic and energising and lots of people want to fill the room to hear you speak, that seems to me uh, a, a very possible credential for being uh, a good leader out in the world. But these metrics can be manipulated. These ways of looking at uh, a leader often tell us less than we think about God's endorsement. Just because lots of people like someone does not mean that they're godly. Just because lots of people give to someone does not mean they're godly. These metrics that we often impose on those at the front are not what Peter talks about. And thirdly, and this is what I always find this so interesting, when Peter says this stuff, he's telling us what church leadership looks like. And he's saying to the whole congregation, it needs to look like this. Because we can abdicate responsibility and think, oh, it's nothing to do with us. It's those people up the front that have all the power and I'll just let them get on with it. You know, I just worry about my own little world. But Peter tells the leaders in front of the whole congregation, this is what you need to look like. And the congregation is being encouraged, hold your leaders to account. Make sure that they are like this and not like that. You cannot let abuse go on. And the church history is filled with moments of abuse that the congregation have abdicated responsibility for. I want to... Uh, drill down a little more into what a uh, leader in the church looks like. If you've got a Bible, turn to Titus 1. It says this in Titus 1, verse 5. So this is Paul writing to uh, his, his, uh, his brother in Christ, Titus. The reason I left you in Crete, if you've been, been on holiday in Crete, then you know where he's talking about. It's the same place. Um, 
The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. And what's that order look like? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And now there must be charismatic and exciting, successful businessman, uh, someone that draws in the crowds. Doesn't say that. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. Amazing how many church leaders have failed after two points of uh, Titus. Uh, but anyway, carry on. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. I really hope wild and disobedient doesn't mean they uh, shin up the local trees outside the church building and that as well. I hope it means something a little bit more negative than that. Um, an overseer manages God's household. He must be blameless. You can't expect not to be able to deal with your own family, but deal with church a bit. He must be blameless, not overbearing. He's not supposed to be a bully. He's not get quick-tempered where you're like frightened to approach him. He must be not given to drunkenness. He must be not violent. You're like, flip sake, imagine some of the candidates they must have had that they had to write in, not violent. Not pursuing dishonest gain. I've known preachers who pursued dishonest gain and they've sort of, uh, uh, they've been let go because they're lining their own pockets. Rather, he must be hospitable. Come into my house, come and have coffee, have dinner with me. He must be one who loves what is good, is self-controlled, is upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. He must know his Bible. He must be familiar with it. He must be able to talk about it so that he can encourage those, others, by sound doctrine and refute those that hope. He must be able to lead the congregation into what is orthodoxy, you know, what is true, and with this heterodoxy, which is uh, sort of untrue, which is spurious interpretations of different bits of text. Paul is trying to bring order to the churches in Crete, which sound like they're new, full of energy, and like young children running everywhere and creating a real mess. And Paul goes, no, let's create some order, let's bring some elders in there. Not the violent ones, thank goodness. Not the ones, the drunken ones, or the, the ones that like to lie in their own pockets. We need uh, ones not like that. Um, and Titus, you need to put those in place. You know, go to the different towns and put them in place. And so we find church, again, is not a chaotic cacophony of prophets. We don't all come here speaking in tongues and shouting and prophesying and say, I see the beast before me and he looks like Henry Smith or Boris Johnson or anything else. Just go, we have a leader. We have leaders to moderate these things and go, you know what, that's true, but I'm not sure that you can say that, and I'm not sure you should be saying that. Let me have a quiet word with you. Um, and these leaders are to be mature adults. Um, sure, my kids, young as they are, would love to be in charge and just tell people what to do. It's not for them. 
It's not for new believers either. It's for people that have walked with Jesus and uh, know his voice very well. And they're to be mature adults with godly qualities and they prove themselves. They're not like, yeah, we'll suck it and see. We'll just throw these guys in, see if they make good leaders or not. They'll either think, sink or swim, like some sort of bad dad with his child at the swimming pool, you know, just throw them in and see what happens. It's like, no, these guys already know that you can trust them. They already uh, look after their, uh, the nearest and dearest around them really well. And Peter lays, doesn't he, great emphasis on the elders' character, their internal spiritual life, and uh, the fruit that they exhibit, like patience and kindness, hospitality, um, and uh, he doesn't mention, Peter doesn't mention charisma, doesn't mention great hair or great teeth, which I thank him for. Uh, he doesn't mention spectacular supernatural gifts. You know, every time you go in the room, the leader has got to make like the lame walk, the blind see, uh, the drug addict sort of liberated, and uh, the miserable person happy, and the excited person sensible. They're not like some sort of transforming wonder powerhouse. They have an internal life that accords with God, what God loves. And they have governed and looked after their family well. And so if they can look after their family well, they can look after God's family well. Those that affair, uh, direct the affairs of believers should have good internal righteousness. That's kind of like the primary point uh, that Paul would make. And that internal life is apparent with their immediate friends and family. And it's also apparent to other people. You know, perhaps if they are, um, are part of a business, people should know that they're not going to be robbed. You know, if they're a mechanic in a garage, then they're not going to go, yeah, that's going to cost that absolute fortune when it's a really easy job. You know, they, they have a certain integrity about them. And then the wider fellowship embraces them as leaders. Go, yeah, you're going to make a good leader because of your qualifications we already see. It's not a guess. It's a case of we can see that your internal life and your family life qualifies you to uh, uh, have authority in this place. And uh, we're going to try and uh, make that happen. You know, we're going to listen to you. We're not going to make you leader and then just uh, undermine you at every possibility and talk uh, badly about you and talk smack about your mum. You know, we're going to respect you and make room for you and listen to you and, and spend time with you. Um, one of my favourite contemporary uh, pastors is Eugene Peterson. Don't know how he found it, but he uh, found time uh, to translate the entire Bible into some awesome language. Um, and uh, me and Pete are always praying uh, uh, about the unforced rhythms of grace. It's just sort of etched itself into our uh, psyche. Um, and so if you haven't got the message, uh, go and get it. Um, but he's written a lot of books, and uh, some of them are awesome. 
And uh, let me read to you from, I read from one earlier, and I'm going to read from a different one now. It says this. One summer night, an old pastor friend called Ian was mugged while walking his dog. His assailant took his watch and then, just to let him know who was running the show, threw him to the ground and kicked him a couple of times in the ribs. When I saw him a few days later, he was bruised sore and still feeling the emotional effects of the violence. He told me that he was looking forward to leaving the next week for Montana, where he would vacation. That is holiday, folks, in Americanese. Um, he would vacation for a month near Yellowstone Park, far from the crime-ridden city. The high country there is pristine and exhilarating. There it is impossible to harbour a mean thought for more than 10 seconds, let alone act in a mean way. The nearest criminal is at least 100 miles away as the crow flies. Six weeks later, at a gathering of pastors and elders, um, he had his arm in a sling. We had both recently returned to Maryland from our holidays, and I asked what happened. And he told me that he'd been riding a horse on a mountain trail in the uh, Bridger Range, and that the horse had been spooked by a coyote. I didn't live in a place where just coyotes rove around. Uh, spooked by a coyote. He was thrown into a rocky ravine and broke his arm. And he said it is safer to walk on the streets of Baltimore at night than in the mountains of Montana in the daylight. Those mountains are magnificent, but they have 20 different ways to kill you. And that sounds great. And then he adds this little, uh, uh, little sort of cherry bomb. Just like church. And the conversation stuck in my memory. It was lonely in the Badlands, this sort of, sort of personal wilderness Eugene Peterson was in. I didn't know him very well, but I liked him and I trusted him. And a couple of weeks later, I telephoned and I asked if I could come and talk with him. We arranged for a Friday morning appointment. Uh, it was his phrase, 20 different ways to kill you, just like church, that I wanted to talk to him about. Um, and then he sort of goes on about sort of some of the internal battles, and he goes on. Um, it's because he wanted to sort of change how he passes. Um, I didn't seem capable of rousing anything approaching the enthusiasm of the last three years, and my supervisor's counsel of start another building campaign seemed cheap. I had a vague idea of what I wanted, but I didn't know if, uh, if I even knew how to begin. I've been a competitor since getting out of nappies. He says diapers, but we all know that's wrong. Um, I, was I was addicted to adrenaline. And now I was really realizing how my already well-honed competitive instincts were exacerbated by the competitive and consumerist church culture that surrounded me. I wonder if you know a church like that. Competitive and consumerist. Consumerist. And he goes on. Was it realistic to think I could develop from a competitive pastor to something maybe more like a contemplative pastor? A pastor who was able to be with people without having an agenda for them. Just listen to this as he talks about the leader that he wants to be rather than the leader that the culture has kind of made him. A pastor who was able to accept people just as they were and guide them gently and patiently into a mature life in Christ, but not get in the way and let the Holy Spirit do the guiding. 
Doesn't that sound lovely? Wouldn't you like a pastor and an elder and a leader that has that as their goal? Rather than saying, right, what are you going to achieve? What are your ten, st- what are your ten steps to spiritual excellence? What are the five keys to supernatural amazement? To come beside you and be gentle and caring and discern what God is doing in your life. He spoke about saying God in people's situations where his name hasn't been mentioned. Where as you sit beside him and you talk about your struggles and your worries and he comes beside you and he says, Jesus is in this. I find that captivating and beautiful and something that I would much rather be led by. It can be exciting the other ways, but that is something that just goes on forever. You can see that sort of pastor being someone that you can cope with at each different stage of life without being burnt out and exhausted or constantly guilt-ridden that you somehow haven't achieved something. I want our idea of leadership to be transformed this morning. I want us to reevaluate how we evaluate the people that God has put above us. I mean, we have got a little local leadership, and then there's a regional one in Elim, and then there is a sort of national one, and then we've got other leaders in the area. Uh, if you're involved with Love Your Neighbour, you've got other leaders around you. I want you to consider what you think a leader looks like and allow that idea to be fed by what Peter and Paul have spoken about. And we also need to hear that let what it means to be led changes as well. It's not rushing around from one initiative to the another in an excitable sugar rush. It's where is God leading me? And allowing wise, considerate leaders to come alongside you and say, yeah, I I think that's right, that's a great idea. No, no, we don't think bigger me is right today. We're going to stop you doing that right now. And you listen to the different points of view that have come. Because you see, Peter and Paul made very clear that the congregation and the people being led need to copy the leaders. They don't just do what they say, they're to uh, be examples to them. And you're supposed to aspire to the attributes. If anyone's ever been a leader, that's quite uncomfortable. That's not something that I enjoy saying, copy me. Paul was well up for saying it, and I think I'm perhaps a little backwards from him. So it's a little bit uncomfortable, and it makes the leader uh, in me a little bit more circumspect about things. We should long for the company of leaders. I wonder if you do that. I wonder if you seek them out. We should long to find them so that we can be more humble, so we can look and examine and replicate humility and discernment. Um, My wife and I, me, sort of uh, during our marriage, we used to really love spending time with Pete's dad and his mum. They were sort of church leaders in Eden Crawley, our parachurch. 
And there was just something great about being next to someone that made quite important decisions, but also had to work on their internal righteousness as well. And just sitting down and having a coffee with them. And there are particular leaders out there that I enjoy doing that. And I just ask you, how do you interface with your leaders? Are they just people to tell you what to do? Or are they actually someone that you're supposed to grow to know better and copy and emulate? Well, I think we've got some pretty cracking leaders in even Newbush, and I would suggest that they're worth spending time with. I was chuffed last night, what, in the middle of something we were watching, someone gave my wife a call and talked to her and asked her advice. And um, it was, I really enjoyed having my evening interrupted because it was just like, oh, that's what I'm talking about next day. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for that example. Um, doing too badly, I thought it was going on. Um, one of the great, but we're on the last page of the, uh, uh, of the sermon, if you're tracking how long we're going for. Um, one of the great Bible stories that we tell our children, you know, it's in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and uh, I certainly quiz my kids on it, is the extraordinary battle between the young lad David and the veteran warrior known as Goliath. Little guy versus giant. Classic setup. Um, great thing for little children to hear. Um, before the showdown, there's this spine-tingling, hairs-on-your-hand-raising moment uh, where the King of Israel meets this impetuous, uh, loud mouth who's just sort of comes in and sort of thinks, uh, he can do something. I want you to listen to this. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 17. Um, it says this. Verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, this giant Goliath. Your servants will go and fight him. You can imagine all the soldiers sort of hiding, sort of smiles and laughs. And his brother's going, man, this guy is so embarrassing. Why did my dad, Jesse, let him out of the house? Um, and Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him, you idiot. We would have used that if uh, that English was there. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. And there's also the size differential, okay? There's a massive size differential. But David said to Saul, your servant... This is fantastic. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, what would you do if a lion or a bear came and grabbed your cat or your snake or your dog? So what David did when a wild bear or lion carries off a sheep, I went after it. This young kid, who they won't even like fighting the army, is chasing lions. I went after it and rescued it from its mouth. This guy's chasing bears and lions. Wow, that's some credential. When it turned on me, 
Okay, so we're just not sulking away. The lion doesn't like having the sheep taken from its mouth. I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Um, he may not look like much, but you can people go, ooh, that's quite good. I quite like that point. That's quite impressive. You know, I'm not don't still don't fancy your chances against the Goliath, but uh, you speak well. You know, you um, you resonate with my heart. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul, um, I think he knew when he was bested, said to David, go on and the Lord be with you. And uh, if you don't know what happens next, go and read 1 Samuel, because it's absolutely cracking. So in this presence of this experienced soldier and commander of men, this Saul who'd led lots of successful battles, the shepherd comes in and says, yeah, I fancy my chances of winning. I think I'm going to do really well. And he doesn't speak about strategy. You know, I'm going to flank him on the left, or they're going to do a feint, and the giant, he's going to use his, uh, I'm going to use his body weight against him, and then I'm going to sort of cut his ankles, and then sort of uh, do something like that. David talks of bravery and divine protection. He says, I'm brave enough and God is good enough. And that's my qualification to take down this giant. When we think about shepherding, we can easily think of things like uh, that psalm that talks about, he leads me by babbling brooks. And perhaps we think about nuzzling sheep and cuddly lambs and that sort of thing. In Palestine in the Iron Age, at the time of David, it was all about fighting lions and chasing bears. And it was dramatic, and there was blood and guts and fear and bravery. And that is what qualified David to take on Goliath. And this hard picture, this costly picture of what shepherding looks like, you know it is hard, it is dangerous, you put your life in your hands, you are very likely going to die. That picture of shepherding, it is no accident that it sets itself up for what the Messiah, the great shepherd, is going to do. If that's what a little shepherd looks like, imagine what the great shepherd looks like. If the little shepherd fights lions and bears, you're going to, I'm like, we're going to have to be dealing with like dinosaurs or something for Jesus. Because that is the great shepherd. His uh, uh, um, bravery and confidence in the Lord will face down any foe. And he will risk all he has for those in his care. So Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd. And we're talking about brave, we're talking about take his life in his hands, we're talking about familiar with victory. And he bravely faces outrageous danger, bravely faced sin and death on that cross for the safety of us. And I really like that picture. Um, and it's one that sort of David brings to us. And it fleshes out a little bit of what we think about shepherding. Let me read the uh, uh, last bit of Bible verse today. 
So it says this in uh, John chapter 21. So this is the Apostle Peter's uh, comprehensive guide to what it means to be a church leader uh, by the great shepherd. It says this in John chapter 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. We have this picture of shepherding in church leadership again. And again, Jesus said to Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said, son of Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, which he corresponded exactly to the three times uh, Peter denied Jesus up to uh, the crucifixion. Um, and he said, Lord, you know all these things. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And you're like, oh, okay, so Peter has to go on some sort of residential course to speak in public, you know, a bit of a theology, so he gets the, it right. And then listen to what Jesus says shepherding will look like to Peter. I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, when you have reached maturity in church leadership, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you. Now that's not because Peter hits this uh, point of prestige that he has sort of uh, a butler to look after him. It's a sign of the fate that he's going to see at the end of his life. You, you'll be led where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this, uh, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This is the discipleship that Peter got. He said, Jesus said to him, you want to be a shepherd? Excellent. I want you to be a shepherd too. But shepherding is not what you think. It's not babbling brooks and nuzzling lambs. It's not reclining on the uh, hillside with a crackling fire. It is you being taken where you don't want to go and you are going to be executed uh, in a manner that no one would choose. And that is what shepherding will look like to you. I wonder how many people are like, yeah, that sounds great, I'm well up for that, I'm going to sign up for that uh, uh, teacher like, uh, leadership disciple course, that sounds amazing. And Peter then carries that for the rest of his life. When he writes this, he knows that at some point he is going to be led to his execution by people that hate him. And so he repeats it in his letter. The church leader is not someone that gets to sit in his office and give orders. If I have been that, I apologise, because it certainly isn't what Peter uh, represents here. They're not just to earn a salary and tell you what you want to hear. Fascinating how we evaluate sermons. Oh, that was a good one, or I didn't like that one. Or perhaps they are what God says, and we need to face each one individually. Perhaps we are not the arbiters of whether uh, a sermon or a leader is good or bad in that respect. 
The leaders are in churches to lead by example and ensure the people are nourished by God's word. If you feel I haven't made my point yet, I'm going to read one last bit and then we're going to end. So uh, coincidentally, it's a book called Lead Like a Shepherd uh, by a, a guy called Larry Oswald. And it says this. Um, you're completely not that because it's the wrong book. So, when I said lead like a shepherd, I meant this one. A good shepherd will put the need of the sheep first, even at the risk of being misunderstood and maligned, but he doesn't enjoy it. Those who enjoy keeping their sheep on edge aren't shepherds, they're spiritual bullies. I remind, they remind me of a pastor I once knew. He was bright and passionate and a strong communicator. He was also a bit of an idealist. By his own admission, he didn't like many of the people in his church. He thought they were uncommitted, lazy wimps. Wow, what a pastor. When he took the lead pastor role in the large church that had been in decline for a number of years, he thought it had no problems turning it around. At first, it looked like he was right, the crowd swelled, thanks to his strong communication skills, and some good things were done, but the longer he was there, the more impatient he became. Whenever something needed to be changed, and believe me, there was a boatload of things that needed to be changed, he ignored the softer sides of leadership. He went straight into that, he makes me uh, uh, go by sort of uh, streams and leads me into the valley of death mode. After a few years, it became evident that he had two fatal leadership flaws. He was too impatient to slow down and earn the trust of the flock, and he found a perverse joy in shocking and scaring the sheep he thought moved too slowly. It's no surprise that he didn't last very long, but it wasn't because he didn't know where the green pastures were or how to make his sheep lie down in them. It wasn't because he knew his way, he didn't know his way through the valley to the mountaintop. It was because he had the heart of a hireling. He didn't know the difference between being misunderstood and maligned and being distrusted and despised. He was a spiritual bully and not a shepherd. If we listen and embrace Peter's words this morning, abuse of power in church should be unthinkable should be impossible. Christians, who are leaders here, put themselves in the firing line. You know, they chase bears. And the rest of us follow them. We copy them. Because they're the uh, examples that God's put in place for us to emulate. And when we copy those leaders, we follow Jesus. It's not some mystical experience. It's God's put these leaders in place. We copy them and we will become more like Jesus through it. The leaders' bravery and discipline should call out to us so that we follow them and follow Jesus inevitably. And so I'm going to close now with those thoughts sort of uh, reverberating around our heads. And I want us to pray for our leaders that they are good at love and that they are good at bravery, that they are good at discipline and good at conduct. Because if they are, 
the rest of us should be as we follow these very heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for Peter, who uh, is, uh, uh, just had um, this incredible story and this incredible weight of knowledge on leadership, and we just listened to his words. Lord God, we thank you for those leaders that you've put in this fellowship uh, and in the other fellowships in Crawley and in the other uh, Christian uh, ministries. And Lord God, we pray for them. Lord God, we pray that they would be good under-shepherds, that they would know what it would take, that they would draw near to you. And Lord God, I pray that we would be good at following them. We would be good at copying them. That Lord God, as we listen to these contemplative pastors, that we would know what it is to follow you more closely, that we would hear your voice more loudly, that we would feel your presence uh, uh, more strongly. Oh God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.